solicit from you input as to what topic or book to, to preach. And uh, I really do try to take those requests uh, seriously if the people of the Lord are interested in something that's uh, worth giving some attention to, uh, particularly when it comes to, to book studies. And one of the suggestions was to preach through the Psalms. And I always take a pause when that comes up because there are a lot of them. And just to put our heads down and work through them, one through 150, I fear would ultimately prove perhaps not the, certainly not the best for me. And as do many pastors, you appreciate the poetry, but preaching the poetry is at times more challenging. And it, quite honestly, it just takes a lot more work to, to work through the poetry and get it right. Having said all of that, um, the Psalms are God's words to us, and they are of tremendous value and doctrinal instruction and great consolation to the people of the Lord, and I do not want to ignore them. So what I've kind of decided in a holiday is always a good time to get something like this going, is to try and preach through them regularly, to preach a psalm regularly, but not necessarily to preach through them systematically, 1 through 150. So anyway... Let's go ahead and stand, and we will read the first psalm, and I'll talk briefly in a moment about why this psalm, why psalm number one is psalm number one to us as well. <clears throat> Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And let's pray. Father, as always, it is our hope that you are honored among us as we honor your word. These are your words breathed out to us, your instruction, your commands, your way of seeing the world, your way of understanding humanity. Give to us appetites to be wise, to see things as you do to orient our lives as you would have them oriented. And I pray this help today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, of course, be seated. Well, of course, as you know, there are 150 psalms. They are divided into a number of books. Um, and were we to want to undertake this in kind of a technical sense, we would make notation of the various books and what it is that constitutes the one book of Psalms from another. They are oriented kind of thematically rather than chronologically. In other words, we should never think that Psalm number one is the first written 
and Psalm number 150 is the last written. And one of the reasons we know that is that Psalm number 90 is written by Moses. And it is the oldest of the Psalms. It is a Psalm before David ever was thought of in his existence. And so they're not arranged sequentially, but they are arranged rather thematically. We are not going to really spend much time on that kind of a study. Apart from this, I would argue to you that Psalm 1 and 2 are placed where they are as they are both introducing us to the content of what is called the Psalter, the the collection of Psalms. They are Israel's songbook. They are the songs that God gave to them that they could use to sing about him and about his activity in this world. One of the things that constitutes the first book of the Psalms is that with only one exception in the entire first segment of the book of Psalms, they are all attributed to David. And David is viewed as the author. But Psalm 1 and 2 are introductory. And in their introduction, they serve to remind even Old Testament people that there is a proper way to be oriented to God or to be related to God. That men do not just invent a relationship with God. They do not just claim to have a relationship with God. That they are not in any way, shape, or form the masters of their interaction with God, but that God himself is God and he directs us in what to do. Psalm number 2 introduces us to the fact that all men are rightly oriented to God through his Messiah. And that if you are not oriented to God correctly through his Messiah, you are not really oriented to God at all in a right way. And Psalm number 1 reminds us that we are oriented to God rightly through his word. That there's no such thing as a right relationship with God that is dismissive of what God says. And not just individual pick and choose components of what God says, but what we would call a worldview or a whole man or perhaps a holistic viewpoint of God. Of course, we know that Israel had a unique relationship with God. And just so happens that this morning in the adult Sunday school class, we talked about the fact. We talked about the fact the way, we talked really about the way the Bible recognizes the fact that God's relationship with Israel is different from any other nation that's ever existed. Even, by the way, if I may make this observation, go USA, whom I love, which is my native land, and I consider myself a patriot, but nothing that could ever be said about our relationship with God as a country is what the relationship that Israel with the country was. These are a genuinely unusual people. And I'm going to use the word unusual. Let me just read to you some verses. You need not to turn to them. But our King James Bible uses the word peculiar. Which to us, or at least to me, has you know, kind of a denigrating dimension to it. He's really a nice guy, but he's kind of peculiar. But that is not the way our translators understood the word, and it's not the way that they used the word. 
Exodus 19.5, God said to Israel, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure. And the idea there is special treasure. Above all the people, for all the earth is mine. Which, by the way, special is the way that word is translated in Deuteronomy 7.6. Deuteronomy 14.2, 40 years later. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Deuteronomy 26.18, The Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all of his commandments. For many years later, the psalmist writes, The Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Many centuries later, at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi 3.17, They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, my peculiar treasure, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. But it's not just true of Israel, it is true of New Covenant people as well, because The right relationship with God is not ethnic, but spiritual, related through Christ. Of whom Paul writes in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar. And there the idea is prized, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And Peter reminds us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the things that makes us peculiar is that God has chosen us, and the relationship that God has with believing people, folks, is radically different than the relationship that he has with unbelieving people. I would hope that goes without saying. We're, we're encouraging people to believe on Jesus Christ because there is a substantial reason to do so and a substantial peril for not doing so. Right? It's not just that we think this is a really great idea and you should try it the way we might encourage a new flavor of ice cream upon people. And this is what the psalm is getting at. How does this peculiarity, right? There, one side of the peculiarity is this, the way God looks at those who believe. The other side of the peculiarity is how those who believe look at Him. And that's what this psalm is emphasizing. The relationship of those who believe against those who don't believe. And I think we all understand, folks, that this is not really an an academic kind of problem that just exists in the classroom or even in Old Testament history. How do we as a church interact with and relate to a world that is largely unbelieving? And there are, of course, a variety of ways of addressing that but the Bible pretty much always calls believing people to a radical distinction 
And again, not just in individual components, but in the totality of their life. So with that, let's turn our attention to this psalm. What to us are six verses are to the Israelites three stanzas. So that were we to stand and sing the entirety of the psalm, we would sing three stanzas. It would be written as it was written in the song that we sang this morning. Three stanzas. Because the six verses represent three stanzas. And of course this matters not because we're really here to consider music, but because we understand that when we can recognize what the stanza is, we have some idea where the writer's intentions are. What is he thinking about? How does this stanza add something to the storyline or the truth that we are to learn? And so the first stanza, which comprises verses 1 and 2, in this first stanza, the writer introduces us to the character of our distinctiveness. God looks at his people differently than he looks at unbelieving people. But but believing people are supposed to look at God differently than unbelieving people. And so blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And of course, this first stanza is making a contrast. It is contrasting what a godly man does not do versus what a godly man does do. Verse number one emphasizes what we will not do. This is something that godly people should not do because of their relationship with their God. They should not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And of course, walk is one of the biblical euphemisms for live. It just simply means the way you live your life. And the word counsel means advice or purpose. If you were to ask the world how to live, it has some advice for you. It just does. Here's here's how you need to live. And some of that advice might be live to make as much money as you can get or live to have as much fun as you can have or live to get as much power as you can have or live to get as, have as much fun as you can have because you know life is short and you only go around once. There's no shortage of advice being given by the world on how to live. This is the word that is used to describe the advice given to Rehoboam by both the old men and the young men. You know, the son of Solomon, who when he ascended to the throne said, give me some advice on how to rule. And the old men said, you know, the the people were groaning under the burden of Solomon that he'd imposed upon them. And if you would relax some of the taxation and the regulation upon the people, they would rise to that and would love you. And the young men came in and said, we'll have none of that. You go and tell the people that we're going to be far more rigid, far more burdensome on the people than Solomon ever thought of being. He got advice. And of course, to his great detriment, he followed the advice of the young men. And a civil war was on the brink until God said, no, no, I want this division. 
What advice would you give me? How would you measure? Right? Here's a question, particularly for those of you that are on the younger side. I don't mean the teenagers. I mean the young adults. Define for me success. Not for me. Define for yourself success. More? More what? How much more what? We have lots of people, lots of people of my generation and era who spent a sizable portion of their life trying to get as much money as they can as quickly as they could so they could retire early and really enjoy life as, as if working is somehow an un- unenjoyable dimension of life. What metric will you apply to the standard of success in your life? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man that doesn't go to the world for the definition of success in this life. Nor standeth in the way of sinners, which in the first place almost sounds like a good thing, right? I mean, to stand, to get in the sinner's way is a good thing, but that's of course not at all what is meant. What, what is referred here to is taking your stand with sinners. Blessed is the man that doesn't take his stand with the sinners, that doesn't come down on the sinner's side of things. When my wife and I were in the United Kingdom in 2019, as we were, maybe in that morning or the evening before, I don't remember what it was, we were getting ready to go to Glasgow, Scotland, and our tour guide said, now, tomorrow morning there is a monumental gay pride parade in Glasgow. So you can go to these parts early and, you know, you can do this, you know, but if you're on the main street during these times, there's going to be a monumental parade. Well, you know, I, you know, I, as do with most things, I'm paying half attention and my wife and I ended up on the main street right in the middle of this gargantuan gay pride parade. And it was huge, folks. It was huge. But I saw two people standing in opposition one on one side of the street, one on the other side of the street, out of thousands of people protesting or marching in favor, two people standing. Two people who were not standing in the way of sinners or who, who were opposed to what they're doing. Blessed is the man that does not stand where sinners stand. Blessed is the man whose position there. The Lord has posed the question, Who is on his side? Who is on his side? Here the nation of Israel is singing there is a blessing to the man who is on the Lord's side. Who doesn't take the side of the sinful. Not in any issue folks. But certainly the issues that are fracturing Christianity today. Abortion. Gender rights. Justice. Racism. Where does God stand? Where does the world stand? Blessed is the man that doesn't stand where God's enemies stand. Blessed that man indeed. And this man is radically distinct thirdly. He is radically distinct in that he will not follow the advice of the world. He will not stand with the sinners of the world. 
And he will not sit in the seat of those who are scorners. Sitting in the seat is another one of those expressions that has a particular meaning. It doesn't mean, here's a chair. It means the judgment seat. Blessed is the man who doesn't want to enter into that kind of judgment. That he doesn't want to make the judgments that the scoffers are making. That's what the word scornful is getting at. David lamented, same word, different translation, that he was held in derision, Psalm 119.51. That he was mocked for his position. It is his son Solomon who really makes use of the word as we find him talk so often in the Proverbs about the scorner and the mockers. And the root idea of that is, of course, to make faces that God says, now here's my position, and you make face at it. Blessed is the man who does not do that. Blessed is the man who will not seek the advice of and pursue the philosophy of the wicked. Blessed is the man who will not take his take the side of the sinful. Blessed is the man who will not make the judgments of those who mock the Lord and His ways. And then the first stanza in what to us is verse number 2 goes on to address positively what this man will do. What will this person do? Rather than walk in the counsel of the ungodly and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of the scornful, he will find his delight in what God said. The world is filled, folks. You know this. And, and, and right from the, from the same fountain, the same internet will provide you good and godly information and absolutely, utterly godless information. And sometimes people will give you some really good information and at the same time give you some really bad information. Blessed is the man who doesn't follow the advice of the world. And doesn't take the world's position when it opposes God. And doesn't sit in judgment and criticism of God's position or those who hold it. But blessed indeed are those who are always in the pursuit of knowing what God said. His delight is in the law of the Lord, the Torah, the entirety of the Bible. They didn't have a New Testament We have the completed canon. Theirs was incomplete. But they possessed all that God had said to that point. And blessed was the man who found his delight there. And blessed was the man whose meditation was there. That word meditation is the word mouth and sometimes it's translated in our Old Testament as speech. The the point is simply this, right? This man always has the Bible in his mouth. The Bible is always in his mouth. Ask him a question and you will not get an explanation of worldly metric of success. You'll get Bible. Ask him a judgment. 
You will not get the scorning ridicule, but you will get Bible. Ask him advice, you will discover Bible. This is what characterizes this man. Whatever the subject, whatever the issue, there is one supreme concern that characterizes this distinction. What has God said? What has God said? That brings us to the second stanza of the song. The character of the distinction. What has God said versus what has everybody else said? Stanza number two, the consequence of that distinction. The consequence of that distinction. Verse number three. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringeth forth his fruit in his season, his leaf also shall not wither, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away, which is, if anyone would think of it, an incredibly sobering declaration. And again, we have a contrast. The songwriter has written to us a contrast. Blessed is the man who doesn't do this, but does do this. And if he does that, he will be like this and not like that. He will be blessed. This is the full scope of blessing. This is happiness in its fullness and its entirety. More than he can elaborate upon in the first psalm. It is blessing in the fullest sense of the word. And I would just caution us, folks, not to come to this psalm or really any of the verses that promise God's blessing and primarily think of them in material terms. As if God's greatest agenda for you is that you would have more money or a bigger house or more stuff. Is if God could envision no other way to bless you than to just bestow upon you stuff that he pretty regularly points out really doesn't last and really doesn't matter. And in fact, we'll get to this in a few weeks in the pastoral epistles, but Paul actually condemns anybody who would teach that, which means Paul cannot think highly of anybody who would think that. Perverse disputing is of men with corrupt minds, 1 Timothy 6, 5. Destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Anybody who would equate true godliness as if it could be measured in the same way that we could chronicle incomes is destitute of the truth and you should flee from them as Quickly as can be possible. And in fact, folks, if you look at the psalm, if you look at the second stanza, verses 3 and 4, you'll have a better idea of the blessing that is involved in light of the contrast to the blessing which is perishing. If God was thinking primarily in materialistic terms, blessed is that man, he will be blessed and he will have all this money, then... The contrast would be, but the ungodly will have all this poverty. But folks, the blessing is this. 
which is not insignificant if we will let the Bible speak. The greatest blessing is this, you're not going to perish. That's a pretty good blessing. If you think about how tenaciously we cling to life and how much our lives matter to us, and you note the way that they are dismissed in verse number 4, like the chaff that is blown away by the wind, So the last time you mowed your lawn and some of the grass residue blew away with the wind, how much consideration did you give to that? I mean, for the the most part, we're we're not agricultural people. We're not farmers and harvesters. Many of you have that root, but most of us like me or many of us like me are just City people. Of course I know where produce comes from. It comes from the grocery store. <clears throat> just just in just something to be dismissed of utter uselessness and of absolutely no value. It's not written to be demeaning, but it is written to describe accurately the end result of those people. The blessing again, folks. Jesus told the disciples, right, after he had sent them out on what we would call a missions trip, and they had wielded power over actual demons. They had, they had interacted with de- demonic forces and returned victorious, and man, were they thrilled. She said, you, you know, of course I'm paraphrasing. You guys really want to get excited about something? Get excited about this. Your names are written. Blessed. And yet all the blessings, to go back to the second stanza of the song, not all of the blessings are just simply eternal salvation. But he will be like a tree durable, right? planted, and like a tree, fruitful, when the season is right, that bringeth forth his fruit in the season. I don't even remember where we were yesterday. We were out somewhere, and my wife said, well, if those flowers in bloom, all of my flowers like that have already bloomed and gone. Fruit in its season. And whatever he does will prosper. Which might mean, folks, I mean it might mean some material advantage. I'm not saying that it wouldn't mean that. I'm saying we should not think primarily in those terms for God never does. Folks, God's primary concern for us is not how much money we have or the neighborhood in which we live. And in fact, God's greatest concern for us is not even our physical health. Now those things, really, they do. They tend to consume us. We've, we've got to have money. We've got to have jobs. We've, we, we're trying to, 
to make enough to live and to feed for the family. And we need health to do that. And who in their right mind enjoys being sick? But God's primary concern for you folks is your soul. It's your soul. John wrote, Beloved, I, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper materially and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. So what are the contrasts here? Here, here's a, here's a contrast. This man is different in his character. He is oriented towards the word and advice and the instruction of the Lord as opposed to the word and the advice and the instruction of the world. And because he has that distinction in his orientation, there is a different consequence that comes to him. That man is indeed blessed and he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And the, with contrast, the ungodly are just simply very quickly dismissed as having no essential value. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. So the first stanza of our song is the character of the distinction. What makes us different from our side? And what are the consequences of that distinction? And that brings us to the third stanza. The cause. Who causes all of this to happen? And once again, folks, you have this contrast. Once again, there is a contrast. <clears throat> the ungodly, verse number, <clears throat> verse number five, therefore the ungodly shall not stand when? In the judgment. It, it looks, folks, does it not? Like the ungodly have the upper hand. Which, by the way, in the history of the world is not new. It has frequently, usually looked as if the ungodly have the upper hand. And let us not make any mistakes about it, folks. And I realize that we have been predicting, guys like me have been predicting this gloom and doom for the last 15 or 20 years. But if the direction this present administration is taking continues uninterrupted, we will be put into re-education camps. That's not a joke. That is where they are headed. They appear to have the upper hand. You are hard-pressed anywhere in the world, anywhere in history, to find a government that has genuinely favored righteousness for all people. I was telling my wife recently, 
because England has a track record as being an empire, which is somewhat true, of advancing godliness and attempting to export godliness. But as part of its desire to trade with China back in the 19th century, the English began the importation of opium into China. And single-handedly through the British imports, the nation of China was very soon quickly overtaken with drug addicts. It became a great problem for China. And a genuine black mark against the great British Empire. Nations are rarely godly in their conduct. World leaders are rarely truly righteous people. It just, right, we all understand this, folks. If, if we're going to embrace the spirit of the first stanza and be different in our character, in the pursuit of the difference in the consequence, we must understand that it is to take a minority and unpopular position right now. But this third stanza, verses 5 and 6, looks beyond the present day. Something that is developed, by the way, particularly Psalm 73, right? Extended beyond the present day into the day when all accounts are settled. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I made I read Malachi three seventeen earlier. To it's one of the passages that explains the relationship God has with His people, making up His jewels. There is coming a day, folks, when the ungodly will not be found. They're just, they, they will, I mean, it, it, you know, uh, it just sounds so heartless, but they will be as gone and as forgotten as the grass clippings. They have the microphone today. They have the center stage. But they do not have the victory. Because the Lord knows Right? And that, that is the, the Hebrew word, of course, that refers to the, 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 the deliberate, intimate kind of knowledge. The Lord knows what His people are doing, and the Lord knows how to take care of His people. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. Now, they are loud, and they are proud, and they are influential, and there is almost no place that you can go that they are not wielding their influence But they will not stand. They will not stand. This is what the psalmist is assuring us. Right? 
that God has an unusual relationship with his people. They are his covenant people. And on their side, they are listening to his voice. And his word is in their mouth. This is what they wish to use. His word. And that will result in a different consequence for them. Because God is aware of all that is going on. It is God who will bring about that consequence in the way of his people. It is God who will conclude the ungodly in their judgment. Song to orient us to the entirety of life. Let's pray this morning.